Welcome to the Florida Roundup. I'm Matthew Petty in Tampa. And I'm Danny Rivero in Miami. Orange and Osceola County State Attorney Monique Worrell is out of a job, for now at least. Governor DeSantis suspended Worrell this week. She's a Democrat who was elected in 2020 with 66% of the vote. In a press conference on Wednesday, DeSantis said Worrell hasn't been tough enough on crime and has avoided mandatory minimum sentences for gun crimes and drug offenses. Prosecutors have a duty to faithfully enforce the law. One's political agenda cannot trump this solemn duty. Well, in her own press conference, Worrell said it was done for political purposes and labeled DeSantis as, quote, a weak dictator. And Worrell said she would fight the suspension and run for re-election next year. And if you know nothing else about me, you know that I am a fighter and that I intend to fight. I will not be quiet. I will not sit down. It isn't the first time DeSantis has wielded executive power to remove an elected official whose policies he disagreed with. Worrell is the ninth elected official suspended by DeSantis when they haven't been charged with a crime. That's according to an an analysis by the South Florida Sun Sentinel. Most of those elected officials removed from office include Hillsborough County, including Hillsborough County State Attorney Andrew Warren, who was removed from office last year, are Democrats. And in this way, DeSantis is using his executive authority in a far more expansive and aggressive manner than previous governors, including his predecessor, Senator Rick, now Senator Rick Scott, who removed only one such elected official during his eight years as governor. Well, joining us for more about what this all means legally and politically, uh, John Kennedy, Capital Correspondent for Gannett Newspapers in Florida. John, thank you so much for joining us. Good to be here. Thank you. Also joined by Judith Scully, Professor of Law with Stetson University College of Law. Professor Scully, thank you as well. Thank you for having me. You can join the conversation too. Send us a tweet. We're at Florida Roundup. John I want to start with you. State Attorney Worrell's suspension was announced this week, but Governor DeSantis had been critical of her handling of cases. I wonder if you could just talk to us about what led up to the suspension. Well, there, there's been a back and forth between uh, DeSantis and Worrell's office going back to the early spring when there was a horrific uh, triple murder in uh, Orange County, and uh, which is under her uh, authority. And uh, that the accused murderer was a um, somebody who had a rather lengthy uh, uh, felony record as a juvenile, and then also uh, some some lesser uh, offenses as a as a, an adult. But uh, basically, the accusation uh, from the DeSantis side is that you know this person should not have been on the streets. That um, this. Uh, you know, now accused murderer um, should have been locked up for uh, some of these uh, juvenile crimes, pr- uh, presumably, and, uh, you know, mm-hmm. not been allowed to be in the in public. And uh, DeSantis has managed to, uh, you know, portray uh, Worrell as being, uh, you know, the person who is really guilty of uh, allowing this uh, murderer loose in the state. Uh, even though um, the crimes that were committed by this uh, man when he was a juvenile, Worrell was not even the state attorney at that time. Right. And she's pointed out, too, there's been some back and forth between herself and the Orange County Sheriff as well. So kind of a complex lead into this. Some law enforcement officers, including Polk County Sheriff Grady Judd and Brevard County Sheriff Wayne Ivey, praised the governor for suspending Worrell. Former U.S. Representative Val Demings, a Democrat who was also the chief of police in Orlando before her political career, condemned the move. She called it, quote, the latest desperate stunt from a desperate man who wants to be president, shameful and un-American, end quote. On the other hand, Demings' husband, Orange County Mayor Jerry Demings, also a former law enforcement officer, was far more circumspect in his response. He told the Orlando Sentinel, quote, there has to be a high bar to remove an elected official from office, and I don't know what all the reasons are. Uh, there. So a couple of different 
kind of contrasting uh, responses there. So uh, what does that tell you about, I guess, the governor's use of executive power and what it means for these folks who are responding to this? Well, I don't think there's too much uh, uh, question that the governor has weaponized his office to 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 take this action. Uh, it the the criticism that's coming uh, from from Democrats it seems to be rather clear. Um, uh, Jerry Deming's comments there, I, I'm not too sure. He yeah, you're right. He is kind of circumspect in his uh, response. I don't know if that points to any real conflict between he and in this case his wife over uh, you know their view of DeSantis's actions. But uh, the governor has really amped up his ability to uh, really uh, go at officials, not over, uh, you, you know, malfeasance or corruption or uh, real signs of criminal wrongdoing, but really over policy. And uh, and in this case, Worrell was elected by voters in Orange and Osceola counties as something of a progressive uh, state attorney. And that's something that doesn't sit well with uh, DeSantis, looking back to a year ago when he suspended uh, Hillsborough County uh, state attorney uh, Andrew Warren also for taking uh, some action, signing uh, pledges where he was uh, in dispute of the state's new uh, abortion law at that time, saying that he was not going to be prosecuting anyone for uh, abortion-related uh, matters. Right, so some connections there. Uh, just want to read a couple of tweets here. We are um, inviting your comments on Twitter at uh, Florida Roundup, Double NW uh, writes to us, I've been searching the reasons. I hope you all can shed much light on what's going on here. Something doesn't sound right, really, signing off that tweet, FLNPA. And then here's one from Lisa P. Lloyd. DeSantis appears to be doubling down on what was already a disturbing pattern of authoritarian, undemocratic action that escalated with his re-election and the launch of his campaign. The far-right GOP majority in the legislature gave him an ordinate power to abuse his office. Again, you can send us tweets. We're at Florida Roundup. I want to bring Professor Judith Scully into the conversation now. Judith, uh, thanks for, for coming on. Absolutely. Thank you. So, you know, putting putting this in context, um, previous Governor Rick Scott, as I mentioned earlier, out of the eight years, he only suspended one elected official who was not charged with a crime. Um, and in that case, it was Broward Supervisor of Elections, Brenda Snipes. She had already submitted a resignation. He suspended her. And here we're ticking. This is the ninth such suspension under five years of Governor DeSantis. Uh, what can we, we make of this and this use of executive authority in this way? I mean, I think that what we have to take into consideration here is that Governor DeSantis really likes to eliminate any form of dissent, right? And so he views um, the state's attorneys that he has suspended so far, Andrew Warren, as well as Monique Worrell, as individuals who don't agree with his philosophy about how to manage crime. And it's really the province of the state's attorney's office to determine that, and as was pointed out, um, state's attorneys are elected officials. Um, citizens come out to vote for them to to um, indicate their support for the way in which these individuals have articulated how they're going to fight crime. And um, Governor DeSantis has a very clear get tough on crime sort of approach. And he tries to create a scenario where anyone who opposes him or who has a difference of opinion from him should be eliminated, right? And so with Andrew Warren, um, you know, he has a um, conviction review unit or had a conviction review unit that actually questioned um, issues related to policing. Um, Monique Warwell as well, uh, has indicated that she wants to do and has done, not that she wants to do, but that she has implemented pretrial diversion programs, which provide an alternative to incarceration. Um, and I think that does not sit well and, and with many, governor. many jurisdictions in, in Florida have those. I'm I'm sitting here Absolutely. in Miami. We, we have one. We've had one for decades at this point. Absolutely. But it's not just about pretrial diversion. It's also about what do those pretrial diversion programs mm -hmm. do and for whom? And also, how do we hold police accountable? And I think that state's attorney Worrell has been very clear about her desire to make sure that the law 
applies to everyone, including police officers. And she has held um, police officers accountable as well. She has prosecuted and placed um, and received convictions against a police officer in Orlando that had previously been named officer of the year. And I don't think that set well with um, the police union. I don't think it set well with the governor as well. And that put um, state's attorney Worrell on the radar screen, I'm sure. And Worrell, in, in her defense, she has said very plainly that she is simply living up to her campaign promises and that voters voted Absolutely. for her to implement these policies. But this is where it gets tricky because her version of what she says is just doing her job for the governor appears to be neglect of duty. I mean, my question to you, legally speaking, is this just a matter of opinion or interpretation or is there any kind of objective way to sort this out? Well, I mean, I think that the governor has the responsibility of pointing out exactly what he views as her um, dereliction of duty, which um, has yet to be made clear. Um, and she very um, vociferously is saying, I am doing my job. And so, you know, you're asking, is this a matter of opinion? I mean, certainly it's a matter of fact, right? With, of which people can have different opinions, but we need to know exactly what is the governor claiming that um, Monique Worrell did that was, or that does constitute dereliction of duty. I don't think there's anything that he can point to in that regard. And and just for, for our listeners' sake, can, can you tell us about this part of the Florida Constitution that does allow a governor to remove an elected official? Like, what, what does it say and what sure. are the parameters of that? Right. Article 4, Section 7 of the State of Florida Constitution authorizes the, govern the governor to suspend any state officer not subject to impeachment on the grounds of malfeasance, misfeasance, neglect of duty, drunkenness, incompetence, um, or permanent inability to perform official duties. Right. And so the question here is, what is malfeasance? What is neglect of duty? What does it mean to be incompetent? Um, and again, we don't have any specific allegations that that indicate um, what exactly the governor is claiming are um, neglect of duty or malfeasance of any way. You're listening to the Florida Roundup. We're talking about the suspension of Orange and Osceola County State Attorney Monique Worrell. Governor DeSantis saying he just suspended her for neglect of duty. Worrell and her supporters saying this is a political act. Uh, we're with Professor Judith Scully and reporter John Kennedy. John Kennedy, if I could bring you back into this conversation, I mean, put this in context for us. It has been noted by a number of folks um, that DeSantis obviously is running for president. What about the timing of this? Yeah, the timing is very interesting. It occurred a day after uh, he had gotten a lot of uh, negative uh, campaign coverage for um, unseating his uh, campaign chairman and uh, replacing that chairman with um, his, who, the person who is currently his chief of staff in the governor's office uh, is going to take over now as uh, DeSantis's uh, national campaign chairman. So uh, DeSantis, you know, was able to sort of change the news uh, around Ron DeSantis by moving from a story the day before that had, you know, cascade of problems beset the governor's office, uh, or the, the governor running for president once again. Uh, this is, you know, DeSantis who has already rebooted at least twice his uh, presidential campaign, but now he's able to come back to Tallahassee uh, and at a 8.15 in the morning news conference announce this action against uh, suspending Worrell and then not taking any questions from uh, reporters that were at the scene. So, um, you know, th there you can uh, sort of change the uh, trajectory of your, uh, your, your messaging here in uh, one fell swoop, maybe. Got a question here. S Stone uh, writes into us on Twitter, uh, that, that Twitter handle again for folks, or X if you want to call it that, at Florida Roundup. Uh, S Stone writes, and is DeSantis administration investigating all other state's attorneys for these same metric, uh, neglect of duty, that would be. So, John Kennedy, what about that? Do we know if there are other state's attorneys who are kind of uh, in the spotlight here or, or potentially could be worried about their jobs? Well, we don't, uh, to answer that directly, but um, I think there is some concern because um, just uh, yesterday as well, the 
state Senate Democratic leader, Lauren Book, who is from Broward County, she um, uh, sent a letter uh, to the governor's office uh, requesting, you know, uh, a, a little bit of insight into this. You know, are there other mm-hmm. uh, potential suspensions coming uh, of, of elected officers around the state? And uh, what are is your reasoning? We'd like to see some, uh, you know, metrics or some data that would support what you are you know, claiming uh, you need to do. So, yeah, I think there is some concern. And then even beyond that, uh, we just wrote a story uh, that ran today about the idea that the uh, Republican House uh, Speaker, Paul Renner, who's from the Jacksonville mm-hmm. area, he recently uh, got approval from the um, uh, Florida Supreme Court for his request to do a study. Uh, this is a committee that's going to be doing a study looking at possibly consolidating uh, Florida's 20 judicial circuits. Now, there's some folks that are looking at that as this is a, another effort to, uh, uh, as, as the Democrats are saying, it's sort of gerrymandering the courts to where you could wind up, you know, recasting the boundaries of uh, judicial circuits. And perhaps in DeSantis' view, maybe is the goal to try to wind up with uh, conservative state attorneys in every, uh, you know, existing judicial circuit around the state. We may not have 20 circuits anymore. Maybe it's going to wind up something less. That's something that is still in development and maybe a, a topic for the uh, legislative session in 2024. Very, very interesting there. It's something to watch, obviously. Um, Pro- Professor Scully, want to bring you back into this. Um, you know, it's worth keeping in mind, of course. Um, last year, Hillsborough County State Attorney Andrew Warren was suspended. That has gone through the courts. Warren tried to get back in into office. Um, it was kind of a complicated legal history. But my question to you is, can we learn anything about how that Warren case played out as to what we might expect from from Warrell's suspension and her attempts to get back into office? Uh, very hard to predict. And I think whether or not um, Attorney Warrell gets back into office is really going to be a question of election, right? Will people come forward and support her in her re-election campaign? But in terms of the um, court aspect of this, I want to point out that in Warren's case, um, the federal district court actually did conclude that um, Governor DeSantis's actions were political, Right. Um, So they didn't find a basis substantively um, that would indicate that there was any um, dereliction of duty on his part either. And so I think we have some court precedents here saying, look closely at what DeSantis is doing, because his actions do appear to be political and not based on um, factual data. And and in that case, the the court concluded that. But in the end said, but I can't put the state attorney back into office. I can say this looks like it was political, sure. but 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 I can't put him back into office. Right. The federal court doesn't have the power to do that. They don't have a remedy for the this um, problem that they have identified, most definitely. Um, but there is still a, um, a lawsuit pending pertaining to whether or not what Governor DeSantis did in some way has impacted Um, the state's attorney's First Amendment rights as well. Thank you. And just to to close out our conversation, a tweet from Terry Fortman says, it's a great example of an autocrat defeating the will of the people when they had elected her by a wide majority. And we've been speaking with Judith Scully, professor of law at Stetson University College of Law. And also we've been speaking with John Kennedy, capital correspondent for Gannett Newspapers in Florida. Thank you both so much for coming on the Florida Roundup. Thank you. Thank you. Coming up after the break, a closer look at Florida's new immigration law and how it's affecting Floridians without documented immigration status. You're listening to the Florida Roundup from Florida Public Radio. Hurricanes, lightning, flooding, and tornadoes affect the entire state of Florida. And the team of meteorologists from the Florida Public Radio Emergency Network keep you informed around the clock. All year long, we're committed to providing in-depth weather coverage, both over the radio and on the mobile app Florida Storms. The Florida Public Radio Emergency Network is supported by this station and Citizens Property Insurance, online at citizensfla.com. 
A lawyer in New York makes a living suing food and drink companies that mislead consumers. When the hint of lime isn't really citrus or the aged vanilla is artificial flavoring, Spencer Sheehan sues and often wins. But who benefits? Coming up on Today Explained. Tonight at 6.30 on WJCT News 89.9. High above us right now are 4,500 satellites run by one man. So half of all orbiting satellites are controlled by SpaceX and Elon Musk. Which raises the question, is the atmosphere just there for the taking? New York Times tech reporter Cade Metz joins us to talk about Musk's play to control the skies. That's next time on Think. Tonight at 10 on WJCT News 89.9. Welcome back to the Florida Roundup. I'm Matthew Petty in Tampa. And I'm Danny Rivero in Miami. Throughout Florida, there are many families of immigrants. Some of those families include members who are undocumented or in the process of obtaining permanent citizenship. A new series from WMFE explores how a new law impacts these families. Senate Bill 1718 passed in the 2023 legislative session and went into effect July 1st. The sweeping legislation covers over a dozen policy areas that target Floridians without documented immigration status. That is people like Ave. Before, when my children were uh, small, I was afraid. I didn't want to drive. So I was keeping most of the time in my house. Every time that uh, we went to the church or buy groceries, it was like hard. Because I'm always telling my children, be good, don't move. The police is everywhere. All this year, it's like, living in the sh- uh, in the shadow so we're not talk about this not even with my family because it's something like just inside me or my own family because she's still undocumented ave uses a nickname for this story which is featured in the multimedia series and Ave spoke with WMFE reporter Joe Burns, who joins us now on the Florida Roundup. Joe, thanks for coming on. You bet. And we're also joined now by Talia Blake, WMFE's Morning Edition host and reporter, as well as Samuel Vilches Santiago, the Florida director of the American Business Immigration Coalition. Talia, Samuel, thank you. Thank you both for coming on as well. Thanks for having me. And our lines are open for this segment. Has this new Florida law affected you, affected your family, affected your business? Give us a call at 305-995-1800 or send us a tweet at Florida Roundup. Joe Burns, let's start with you. We just heard from Ave. She's part of a multi-generational immigrant family who you spoke with for this series. What can you tell us about her and the rest of her family and the situation they're in right now? Um, Yeah, it's a huge family. So... um... The dad, grandfather, came over in 1988, and then he he has 10 kids. So in the 90s, they came over. And um, nine of the 10, there's one daughter who remains in Mexico. When I asked Abe about a word to describe her family, she immediately said, a faithful family. For them, their Catholic faith is very important. They grew up saying the rosary together. So that's like a huge part of, of who they are. And and when it comes to, to this law, which is now in effect, SB 1718, um, where does it leave the family? I mean, this is a family with mixed status. Some people are undocumented. Some people are American citizens or have other kind of, you know, legal paperwork. Um, how is this law affecting families like like this family? I think one of the big ways it affects them is in terms of travel. For instance, Abe, during the summer, would go to other states. We'd go to Georgia, 
to work in agriculture. Can't do that now, right? They'd take family vacations together um, out of state. What happens to that, right? They, if, if Ave is in one of the cars coming back, is the other family member going to be charged with a felony under this new law? So it's, it has had effects on them in that way. And it's tricky because there was a whole lot of anxiety as this law uh, was beginning to come into effect. But I don't think people have experienced a lot of the things that they feared. They didn't. Um, and one of the things that Avi does is she tries to educate her friends um, in the uh, immigrant community about the impacts of this law. And for this for this story, you also spoke with Ave's niece, who uses the nickname Chadi for the series. Let's listen to a clip from that conversation. So they all have different feelings, different interpretations of everything, and it's like they all have their own struggles. All right, so that's Chari speaking about the mix of immigration statuses between her family members. Joe, can you elaborate a little bit on this for us? Right, so it's all over the place. Um, her grandfather, Donaciano, Donaciano Arroyo, came over uh, 1988. Eventually, in 2006, he became a U.S. citizen, and that was huge for a lot of his of his children. A lot of them were able to get their green cards and eventually in many cases, become U.S. citizens. Wasn't that way for Abe because she was married, a little bit older, had kids. She wasn't able to get the green card at that time. So in this family, there are people who are undocumented, people who have the green cards, people who are U.S. citizens, the whole gambit. Mm-hmm. I wonder, too, I mean, just thinking about an anonymity, how did... WMFE's newsroom approached the series thinking about that immigration immigration status of, of some of the subjects. Right, Matt. As, as you well know, <laughs> um, it is not something that uh, WMFE does lightly, grant anonymity. It's just something we don't usually do. But our news director, Latoya Dennis, said, we want to have a policy of do no harm. And for a lot of these people, in order for them to be able to share their story, we had to grant anonymity because otherwise their livelihood, you know, would be very much threatened by putting their names out there. Yeah, got it. I wanted to just ask about some of the technical aspects of it. This part, the part of this law that requires employees' names to be run through the e-verified database technically only affects people who work for companies that employ 25 people or more. I wonder if that includes some of the folks that you talk to during your reporting. Um, it, uh, it does in a way, right? So one of the, the the deals with this law is that this e-verify verification only applies for new hires. So someone who has a job, they're not really at risk of, of losing that job because the company needs to do an e-verify check. So for Ave, I mean, she's had the same, worked for the same company for 20 years, a very good employee, right? And she stayed with her job because it would be difficult if she had to get a new job. Sure thing. I want to just play a little more of your conversation with Chari too. In this clip, she talks about her grandparents' journey. Let's take a listen. My family, my grandparents came here. It's very hard for them to like leave a part of who they are, you know, their culture, to go somewhere else, somewhere new, to learn a new language, to adjust to so many things. And it's like, They've gone this long putting us first, like their future generations or future family first. And it's just nice to know that they were able to do that, the sacrifice that they made. And I don't know, I think it's nice that we're still able to try to like still have that culture here. Speaking of culture and traditions, Joe, you visited the Arroyos for one for dinner one night. What can you tell us about the evening you spent with them? Just give us an idea of you know the type of food you shared, the, the conversation, the company. Yeah, so I'm not an idiot, right? So I scheduled or I we scheduled this appointment <laughs> for for uh, 6:30 at uh, a family of Mexican immigrants. You know, there's going to be good food, and there was. Mm-hmm. So I walk in. There's a table spread, and it's it's chicken tinga tostadas, which I didn't realize was a thing, Matt. It's just fantastic. And um, the chicken was just 
it was kind of soaking in a chipotle sauce and so it was absolutely delicious and one of the the things that i really noticed about this family is just the degree of hospitality you really mm-hmm. could see the warmth and the among the family members you know um and that was communicated to me as a journalist as well Th- thank you, Joe, for making us all salivate. I'll, I'll keep that to myself. <laughs> um, Samuel, I, I want to bring you into this conversation. Um, Samuel, I mean, we, we've heard quite a bit and for quite a while now some anecdotes about how this new Florida law is impacting immigrant communities in Florida, some anecdotes of people leaving, people having troubles of some kind. Um, you... You know, you you are the Florida director of the American Business Immigration Coalition. I'll just reiterate. I mean, what have you been hearing directly? So we've basically been hearing the same thing. We have over 300 members across the state who who have different types of businesses in different industries. And pretty much across the board, we've heard the same thing. For instance, one of our our biggest leaders in the agricultural industry, he has uh, five different family farms across the state, primarily in South Florida. And he was telling us how he was shooting a commercial for his business and he was utilizing a drone. And when his workers saw the drone, they all started running away because they thought it was the state uh, coming to coming for them, pretty much. So we we and we've heard that in different industries across the state. We heard it in construction. Another one of our members has a big construction company in Jacksonville. Uh, and across the state and when he showed up to one of his job sites in Jacksonville right after the the legislation was enacted on July 1st um the site was empty all of the all of the workers had left so so we know that this will have an economic impact primarily in key industries like construction agriculture hospitality etc and 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 Samuel I mean uh, the second biggest part of the the state economy the second biggest chunk of it is agriculture, which is an industry that heavily relies on on immigrant labor and and support. Um, you know, our our harvest not our harvesting the planting season is is coming up now. Do do we have any kind of sense of how this might play out in the agricultural field? That that's actually our biggest concern. Uh, about forty seven percent of all of the agricultural workers in the state of Florida are undocumented. Uh, and many others that are documented, they have family members who work in the industry who are undocumented. Uh, and the biggest worry is what's going to happen in October when the new agriculture season starts picking up. All of the workers have to be uh, rehired pretty much. Uh, and that means they have to go through the E-Verify mandate. What we saw in other states where this law was implemented, like in Georgia in 2013, was that the year after uh, the E-Verify mandate is implemented, there's significant loss for the agriculture industry. And that's pretty much what um, different leaders in the agriculture sector here in Florida are expecting. Uh, and there's just pretty much a lot of concern all around. Talia, I want to bring you in, into this conversation. Um, you spoke with State Republican Representative Randy Fine of Brevard County who sponsored this bill in the Florida House. And you, you talked to him for this WMFE series. Let's listen to a clip of that conversation right now. And I, I want to be clear. I'm not saying all asylum claims are false, but the ones that I'm thinking about are the ones that are at our southern border. And so if you are fleeing, if you have concern, legitimate concern for your safety, you should be claiming asylum in the first country that you reach that is not your own country. You don't have the right to leave your country and wander through one or two or three or four other countries shopping for a better deal. So, so Talia, uh, Representative Fine there talking about what he views as the, the shortcomings of, of federal law and how people end up in this in this country. Um, I mean, what did Representative Fine say about some of these concerns coming from businesses and how this is going to impact, you know, undocumented immigrants or just other immigrants in the state. Yeah, so he had a lot to say about why he supported these laws. And when it came to businesses, one of the main things that stood out in our conversation was that he said that 
businesses that are hiring undocumented workers, that's not a good business model to follow because when you have workers who aren't documented, they also don't have health insurance. And if they get sick or anything like that, now they have to go to the hospital without insurance. And that was one of the big things that he was pointing out that it's just not a good way to run your business. That's what he was saying to concerns for businesses through our conversation. You're listening to the Florida Roundup from Florida Public Radio. And Talia, following up on that, um, you, you know, fellow Republican state representative Rick Roth told a crowd in Hialeah that this law is really about political messaging and that no one re- really needs to be scared of enforcement of this. I mean, in, in speaking to Representative Fine, um, anyone else you've talked to, is there any sense that lawmakers are distancing themselves from this because of the potential impact of it? Or do we have any sense of that? So there have been some reports of lawmakers distancing themselves from this law. There was actually a video that came out at the beginning of June showing a Florida lawmaker actually asking Latinos in the state not to leave, saying this bill is a big scare tactic and, you know, just don't leave the state. We're just we don't want more people to come in. But when I actually asked Representative Fine about that, he acted as if he hadn't heard that or hadn't seen any lawmakers who supported it now backtracking. And, and Talia, and just in, in terms of that and the question of enforcement um, or, or messaging, ha, did this law include new resources for law enforcement to actually enforce the law that they now put on the books? The short answer to that is no, basically. When I talked to Representative Fine about it, he said, basically, we fund law enforcement every year and this will just fall under the umbrella of things that they need to enforce. So just another thing that law enforcement needs to enforce, nothing extra going towards it. Interesting. Um, Joe Burns, want to want to bring you back into the conversation. Um, You know, when you're when you're sitting at at a dinner table eating some delicious food talking with a, with a family about this law and how how it impacts people um i mean on the on the one level there's the the details of the law um you know implementation and whatnot and on the other side there i can imagine there's some emotional response um can you tell us a little bit about that emotional response to this there is it's something i heard from uh, abe and talking about her home country the politics there and that the government is is willing to basically cause harm or injury to the people as she saw it i don't want to malign mexico but that was her kind of her reaction and now she says that's happening in florida that the government is willing to hurt people is how she sees it and i think you know it's that it's that feeling that and it may be kind of the purpose of the law right to make her feel unwelcome. I want to remind listeners, you can call us for the segment. It's 305-995-1800. Again, that's 305-995-1800. Um, we, Samuel, in, in just a, a few seconds, um, can you can you respond to what Joe just said? Um, just in general, across the state of Florida, you know, we have a we have a a pretty big labor shortage when it comes to different industries. And actually, I want to respond to what Mr. Fine was saying related to our model. Well, it's not a- I'm, I'm, I'm sorry. Hold hold that thought for us. Um, yeah. We're we're gonna go to a very quick break. We'll be right back on the Florida Roundup talking about the new Florida immigration law that just went into effect in January. Speaking with Joe Burns, Talia Blake with WMFE, and Samuel Vilches-Santiago. We'll be right back after the break. Should you find yourself in Albuquerque, New Mexico, you could take a stab at scuba diving in the desert. We have divers from Oklahoma, Texas, Colorado who come and do training here. So it's quite the treasure we have in our own backyard. I'm Kai Rizdal, the thriving economy of scuba education in landlocked New Mexico. Next time I'm on Marketplace. Tonight at 6, here on WJCT News 89.9. 
Florida is the first state to approve materials by the conservative nonprofit PragerU for use in public schools. Teachers can now use its videos freely, but is the content reliable? PragerU is representing what we would refer to as a logical fallacy meaning they came to a conclusion that's not based on fact. I'm Mary Louise Kelly. More on All Things Considered from NPR News. Starting at 4 on WJCT News 89.9. This week marks the 78th anniversary of the destruction of the Japanese cities of Hiroshima and Nagasaki. On the next Fresh Air, we'll hear three interviews about the decision to use atomic weapons and what Americans were not told about their effects. Our guests are psychiatrist Robert J. Lifton and journalists Leslie Bloom and Evan Thomas. Join us. Today at 1 on WJCT News 89.9. Welcome back to the Florida Roundup. I'm Danny Rivero in Miami. And I'm Matthew Petty in Tampa. Continuing our conversation about Florida's new immigration law, welcome back WMFE reporters Joe Burns and Talia Blake, along with their colleagues at WMFE. They've been reporting on the law's impact on Floridians without documented immigration status in a new series called Immigration Divide. Welcome back to the conversation. Also, Samuel Vilches Santiago. He's Florida director of the American Business Immigration Coalition. We welcome your comments and questions to 305-995-1800. You can also send us a tweet at Florida Roundup. Uh, Samuel, let's just kind of come back to what you were saying before the break, and you wanted to respond to something that uh, Representative Finer said. Representative Finer told uh, our reporter Talia Blake. What, what did you have to say about that? Uh, just in general, Representative Fine was talking about uh, the business model being utilized with businesses across the state, but I don't think it's a good economic model for a state that has a 2.6% unemployment rate and where there's only 63 applicants for every 100 open jobs, according to the Florida Chamber of Commerce, to deny the possibility of people who come here to work to actually do that work. And that is exactly what this state is doing with SB 1718. It is putting, um, you know, the economy last and put putting politics first. The other thing I'll say, I came from Venezuela as a political asylee when I was just 13. We came through an airplane, and the reality is my case is no different than the people who are showing up to the border to, to file those claims. Venezuelans, for instance, don't have passports that, have, uh, that allow them to come here. They don't have visas that allow them co- to come here through plane. And the reality is there's simply no way to come here to the United States legally to ask for asylum. Let's get a, com- a call in here from Ed in Orange Park. Ed, you're on the line. Yes, I think that the, the best solution for everybody involved, including the migrants uh, and uh, the uh, work, the you know, the businesses who are looking for workers, is to increase, and this has to be done by the federal government, the legal work visas, where mm-hmm. we can vet the individuals, come here, they can be right in the open, and I mean themselves, not their entire families. After all, our military is sent overseas, and they cannot bring their families either. So that, to me, is the first way. The other thing is, as a legal uh, immigrant here to the U.S., uh, mm-hmm. we find it actually that it's unfair when we have right. people who come here illegally crossing the border while our relatives or ourselves went through the entire process, and they're still waiting to get in legally. Uh, mm-hmm. Now, there's only three countries in, in Latin America which are run by anti-American dictatorships, which is Venezuela, Cuba, and Nicaragua. Those of course, should be given a special status depending on each individual circumstances. But everybody else being poor or coming mm. from a high crime area is not mean that you can get asylum. Just like if you're from a high crime area and you're poor from, let's say, Chicago, and you try to sneak into a Latin American or Caribbean country, I can tell you that excuse is not going to work. They're going to kick you right back out. Ed, thank you so much for the call. Um, Samuel, what about that notion of, first of all, the visas? I mean, uh, that would be something that a lot of immigration advocates have been arguing for, working on for some time. What's going on with that now? Um, And we tend to agree. I I think in general, the biggest issue with our immigration system is that we haven't had real reform since 1996. We haven't had a real path to citizenship since 1986. And it has completely crumbled at the federal level. And it is true, you know, asylum cannot be utilized for all different cases. 
but we need we really need to figure out how to allow people to come here in a legal way so that they can help us uh, continue to grow our economy. Right now in the United States, we have 9.6 million open jobs. And what we're asking the, the Biden administration is to utilize its parole powers to provide work permits to the people who are already here contributing to our economy and also to the people that might be able to come uh, from other countries uh, for different reasons to be able to also do that. Um, and, and we've gotten uh, pretty significant su support from the business community, both in Florida and across the country. I wanted to just ask about that second point the caller made too about kind of putting the shoe on the other foot, so to speak, and saying there should be tougher restrictions or, or you know, maybe the parameters shouldn't be as broad for who gets asylum, who, get, who can claim asylum coming into the United States. What do you think about that? Well, already what, what we know is that, you know, about 85% of the cases uh, that are heard on asylum uh, actually get denied. So it's actually really hard to get asylum in the U.S. The problem is we have a significant backlog uh, of people who are applying for asylum. Right now it's taking nine, 10 years to get an asylum interview. And while those people are in the process to get asylum, they get parole and they get work permits and they're in our communities. What needs to happen is it needs to be an expedited process for the United States to look through those asylum cases as they're coming in. So there's no backlog of people waiting 10 years. And, you know, what we're speaking of, it's, it is a kind of awkward thing because we're talking about now federal immigration law and then there's state laws coming in um, as, you know, the federal government is kind of kneecapped or unable to, to pass anything. Um, but but Samuel, I, d I did want to follow up and ask you, because over the last year, tens of thousands of immigrants from Venezuela, Cuba, Haiti and Nicaragua have been admitted into the United States coming to Florida. They've been paroled in. Um, do we have any kind of sense of how this new Florida law might impact them? Like, are those people considered documented, undocumented? How, how does that impact them? I, I'm actually glad you asked. So I actually brought my family uh, from Venezuela through this program. I'm the sponsor of four people uh, that have come here through this. And we we asked different groups, different legislators asked of the sponsors of this legislation, both in the House and the Senate during hearings and also during, during, during debate about what happens to these people, what happened to the people who are parole, what happens to the people with, who are asylum seekers, what happens to TPS recipients, DACA recipients, et cetera. And we had no answer, right? So the law, in my opinion, is left a little vague on purpose. And that is actually what's very concerning because then it gets to be implemented by law enforcement officials in 67 different counties in 67 different ways. And that's exactly why uh, we needed that clarification. Right now, actually, what the law says is that um, in terms of the human smuggling component, for you to be considered uh, as a felon, you have to be bringing in someone who has not been inspected by uh, an, a federal immigration official. In this case, the people with, with parole have been inspected, and so the law wouldn't be applying to them. But the law is not really specific about that. You're listening to the Florida Roundup from Florida Public Radio. The phone call is the the phone number I'll, I'll say is 305-995-1800. Want to go to the lines now? We have Renee calling from Sarasota. Renee, thanks for calling the Florida Roundup. You're on the line. Yeah, I'd like to say that I have firsthand experience dealing with um, illegal immigrants um, and being in Sarasota and being in Orlando, Florida. Even as recently as now, they in the school, especially in the school system, the illegal immigrants are taking up all the resources that could be used to help um, black children because a lot of the programs that we have to implement were to help them in terms of their reading levels and to help them with just a lot of basic things that they were lacking. But I see firsthand that a lot of the illegal immigrant um, children are the ones who are benefiting from a lot of the programs, especially in the Florida educational system. Thank you. Thank you so much for for the call, Renee. Um, Samuel, can, can, can you please um, re respond to that? I mean, some some people do feel that there is 
scarcity being created in government programs, education, as Renee mentioned, um, due to the influx that, you know, we, we have been seeing of, of immigrants into Florida? I, I'll give you my case. I came to this country without, without status until we then uh, applied for asylum. The school system was extremely helpful to me and everyone in my school welcomed me. Uh, despite not knowing any English, five years later, I graduated as valedictorian of my high school and got a Fulbright scholarship to Princeton University. And we've seen and heard hundreds of those stories from across the state, from undocumented people uh, who come here to work and who come here to work hard. Look, the, this country, the United States, we have a lot of resources and they can be utilized for sure to provide more, more educational opportunities to all the children. And that's exactly what needs to be done. But demonizing immigrant kids is not a way to, to move past our broken immigration system. We really need to come together as a country, both parties, to figure out a bipartisan solution to a broken immigration system without demonizing children and without demonizing the people who are already here. And Talia, uh, uh, I, want, I want to bring you, you back in here, Talia Blake with WMFE. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, moving forward, what, what can we expect from, from Florida lawmakers? The federal government's a whole different monster. What, what are we hearing and expecting in Florida? Yeah, uh, before I get to that, I do just want to um, make a quick note on the last question from the caller. And I will say that the cost to education was one of the reasons that Representative Fine had told me was his reason for supporting this measure was the cost to education, the financial burden to taxpayers. So I just do want to note that. Um, but, you know, federally, people are looking for a change still. Uh, Representative Fine, a lot of the times, uh, was blaming the current board of policy, but right now the president is working to make something for immigrants, but we just, we're still seeing that play out. Right. Um, and Joe, Joe Burns, any last thoughts on this before we, we have to, to close out the segment? Yes, absolutely. People should go to WMFE.org and uh, read and listen to and watch the work of my coworkers here at WMFE and, and working on this series. It has been a real eye-opener for all of us. I, I will yeah, echo that's... that. I will echo that. The WMFE series on this new law has been tremendous. Joining us talking about that was Joe Burns and Talia Blake. Also, we want to thank Samuel Vilches-Santiago with the American Business Immigrant Coalition. Thank you all for coming on to the Florida Roundup. Thank you thank so you. much. Thank you. And you can find out more about the series Immigration Divide on WMFE.org. That's our program for today. Florida Roundup produced by WJCT Public Media in Jacksonville and WLRN Public Media in Miami. Heather Schatz and Bridget O'Brien are the producers. WLRN's Vice President of Radio and our Technical Director is Peter Mayers. Engineering help from Doug Peterson, Charles Michaels, and Michelle Corum. Richard Ives answers the phones. Our theme music is provided by Miami jazz guitarist Aaron Libos at AaronLibos.com. I'm Danny Rivero. And I'm Matthew Petty. Thanks for calling in and listening.